Chapter One, Part One of Cedric the Forester. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynette Calkins, Monument, Colorado. Cedric the Forester by Bernard Gay Marshall. Chapter One The Siege of Castle Mount Joy. That was a blithe spring morning when the messenger from the king brought to my father the order to join the army at Lincoln for the great expedition into Scotland. Six armored knights with their squires and a hundred men-at-arms made up the Mountjoy quota, and these, my father, liege lord of the domain and loyal subject of the crown, lost no time in bringing together. Messengers, on horseback and afoot, hurried out with his commands, and at the castle we were all in a pretty flurry of making ready. The armorers were hammering and riveting in the courtyard, making a most merry din. The big ox-carts lumbered in over the drawbridge, bearing meat and grain for my father's company while on its way to the assembly ground, and for us who were to remain at Mountjoy and our men in their leathern jackets and hoods and with their crossbows slung on their backs were coming in by ones and twos and in groups of half a score now my lady mother drew near to father's side as he watched the labor of the armorers and i having no will to lose any word of his came forward also my lord she said i would speak with thee where the noise of these hammers will not deafen our ears my father laughed as one laughs at the sorriest jest when he is gay. "'Gadzooks, my lady,' he said with a curtsey, which my mother says he learned in Italy, and which, try as I may, I cannot copy. A daughter of the Montmorencys should find in the din of armorers' hammers a music far sweeter than that of the lute or viol. "'Tis well enough,' said my mother hurriedly, "'and I should sorrow to live where it never was heard.' but I have a grave matter upon which to consult thee. Hast thou given thought, my lord, to the castle's defense during thine absence, and that of the best part of our men? My father's brow became furrowed. I opened my mouth to speak, but mother frowned at me, so I held my peace. Methinks she sometimes thinks of me as not more than a child, forgetting that it was my fifteenth birthday that we marked at Candlemas. Some little I have thought of that, began my father. And indeed, Kate, I would not have thee think I would leave thee unsecured. Marvin, the old crossbowman who attended me through all my campaigns, and whose eye for the homing place of his arrow is, in spite of his years, like that of Robin Hood himself, shall be thy right-hand servitor, and with him six good serving-men, who, like him, are of the older day, and unfit for the long marches but who can handle the crossbow, or, at need, the spear, as well as in their best days. These shall be at thy command, and will be ample for these quiet times. Nay, my lord, she answered quickly, these days are none so quiet, with the old wolf of Carlton sharpening his fangs for us and ours. The old wolf hath his summons to the king's banner, as I have mine. Our smaller quarrels must be laid aside while the war is on, and if fortune desert me not, I shall return far higher in the favor of the king than e'er before. It is this very business, well and faithfully done, that shall put an end to Carleton's insolence. The wolf shall snap his jaws in vain. The fat goose of Mount Joy, for which he hungers, shall show itself an eagle with beak and talons. 
I hope it may be as thou sayest, my lord. Still, leave us with old Alan, the armorer. He too is past the days of hard campaigns, and thou wilt have the young smith Dickon for thy work in the camp. Alan shall make for us such a store of crossbow bolts as will make old Marvin and his men seem a score in case of need. As thou wilt, Kate. I had need of old Alan's head far more than his hands, but tis true enough he's not the man who followed my father to the wars. Then he turned to me and smiled as on that greeting day of his return from the holy wars. But, Kate, he cried, here is the champion of Mountjoy now. We had forgot the chief of our defenders. Mayhap Sir Dickon here, if any seek to do thee harm, will find better marks for his bolts than rooks and hares. I knew that he made a jest of me, for he too hardly knows that I lack but half a foot of being as tall as himself, and that when I am not put about by hurry or the like, my voice is as low a bass. But I answered in goodly earnest. That I will, father, and if any varlet throw but an unmannerly word at my lady mother, I'll stop his mouth with a good steel bolt. Let but any one, grey wolf or other, threaten Mountjoy while thou art away, and come within bowshot of our walls, and he shall rue it well. Ha! The young eagle tries his wings, laughed my father. Spoken like a true Mountjoy Dickon, thou'lt do. Give thee but a few more years, and thou'lt serve the king like all thy line. And like a true Montmorency, my lord, put in my mother, forget not that. Pon my soul, tis true, he laughed. Dickon hath as good blood on the distiff side as any his father can boast. But to the matter of the castle's defense in need, Will o' the Wallfield shall stay behind also to see that stores of grain and beef are ample. He's ever a good hand with the farmers, and as sound as an oak staff. And with a kiss for my mother and a pinch of the ear for me, he hurried out again to the armorers. His spirits in good sooth were high that morning, as well might they be. It was full two years since his return from the Holy Land. I had seen him in London riding in his shining mail with those who had helped redeem the blessed sepulchre, and he the bravest, finest figure of them all. Since that time he had stayed here at the castle with naught to do save to judge the suits of the country folk, and now and again chase down and hang some forest-lurking robber. His comrades-in-arms, and those that knew his temper and his deeds, were at the court a hundred miles away, and many a dull day must have seemed a week in passing. Here in the west we have no tourneys, and of travellers from the farther world not many. Only lately some little stir of life did we have. The grey wolf of Carlton from his castle at Terramore, three leagues away, had sent to us an insolent demand for tribute, claiming forsooth that the lords of Mountjoy were but a younger line of the house of Carlton, and that we held our fiefs on sufferance and at the will of them our superiors. Always shall I remember the language of my father's answer. The clerkly knave who brought Lord Carlton's message shrunk and shriveled before it like a leaf too near the fire. Just so will I meet all such threats and insolence when I have but a few more years. Suzerain of Mountjoy, forsooth! Let the grey wolf look well to Terramore, lest we of Mountjoy smote him from his lair. Mountjoy banners will dip before those of Carlton when England pays tribute to the Saracen, and Beelzebub, thy master's friend, sits on the throne. The knave slunk back to Terramore, and for some weeks the grey wolf's pack had yapped and yelled. Two of Lord Carleton's bailiffs had their heads well broken by Mountjoy tenants of whom they demanded rental, and an armed party was sent out to avenge them. 
these men-at-arms were even more roughly used by some of our mountjoy crossbowmen who spied the carlton banner from afar as it entered the village real fighting would surely have come of it and we of mountjoy outnumbered three to one had not the king sent messengers to terramore and mountjoy also commanding all of us to cease from any violence in the quarrel till his men could report to him the rights and wrongs of it End of chapter 1, part 1. Recording by Lynette Calkins, Monument, Colorado.